You are listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For more information, please visit our website at sungrove.org. Hey, well, I hope you're doing good, good this morning. It is a great day to be in the house of God. I'm going to have you turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to start with verse 10, and as you're getting your outline out and you're getting your Bible open, in, whether it's in electronic form or you brought the actual book of the Bible with you today, I want to ask you this question. How many of you in here, you've ever read a book that was so good that it kept you up at night? Come on, be honest. How many, how many, who are my readers in here, by the way? Come on, who are my readers? Yes, readers are leaders. I want you to understand that. Readers are leaders. So let me just say, for some of you young people who are like, I don't read. I'm going to say, if you don't read, then you don't lead. I'm just saying that's the way it works. It's readers are leaders. And even if you have a condition uh, where reading is difficult or reading is hard, listening, being engaged in stuff, that's how you go from being someone who is is not well-read to being someone who's well-read. It doesn't take that long. Readers are leaders. But some of us have read books that are so good that it keeps us up at night. And maybe you're reading and you start to get tired and your eyes start to close. And you, then you put it down for a little bit and like a minute later you're like, I, I can't do it, I can't do it. You gotta like grab that book and pick it back up, right? And you're, whether you turn on your Kindle device or whatever it is, you're just like, I can't go to sleep because I don't know how the story ends. It's so good, it wants to keep me up. It's almost like it makes you a little bit alive and then, then the movie comes out later, right? And you see it and you're like, they got it all wrong. Like it was so much better in my head. Why? Because when we read, sometimes what happens in us is that things come alive that we start to envision and engages our creativity, engages our heart, our passions in so many ways. And, and it's almost like reading can make you a little bit alive. That's why we can escape to a book. We can look to a book. Reading sometimes can make you a little bit alive. Now, some of you, you're go-getters, and you go all the time. And, and some of you are like, listen, uh, I'm going to stay up all night reading this book because I can rest when I'm dead. How many of you have ever heard that statement? I can rest when I'm dead, right? Well, that's a ridiculous statement because when you're dead, your body decays, and that's the thing that needs rest. Your soul doesn't need the rest. Your body does. Your soul is going to be alive not needing to give something your shell rest anymore. It's kind of a ridiculous statement. So what happens is you're either alive in the presence of the Lord or you're alive somewhere you do not want to go. That's what happens when you and I die. And your body, your body's done. It's done. But we want to be doing the kind of reading that makes you and I come a little bit more alive. And I want to talk with you today about the Bible because Paul is talking to Timothy about exactly that. So let's have a little fun with this book, the Bible, for a minute. Um, how many books... Of the Bible, there's 66 total, but how many are in the Old Testament? Okay, some people here said 39. Here's how you remember it, right? How many letters are in the word old? Three. How many letters are in the word testament? Nine. 39. Easy way to remember it, right? Now, let's go to the New Testament. How many books are in the New Testament? 27. Now, how many letters are in the word new? Three. How many letters are in the word testament? Nine. Three times nine. It's 27, right? So that's a quick way to remember, like, how many books? It's 66 in total, but it's just pretty cool about the book. And, and here's why you need today's sermon. This book is not just any ordinary book. This book are the very breathed, spoken words of God. I mean, honestly, as far as a book goes, I could buy this for probably 20, 30 bucks, right? Nice leather kind of copy, whatever. Right? 20, 30 bucks. But let me just say this. 
If this book contains the actual spoken words of God, then this book is priceless. You can't put a monetary value on it, right? Like, let's just say that for a minute. If this holds the very spoken words of a being who is above our world, who is above the universe, who spoke and created everything into being, then this is a priceless book. These are the words of God, not just the opinions of people. And you've got to engage for a moment the evidence, and you've got to engage the reason to answer that question. Are the words in this book the very words of God? Or are the words in this book the opinions of people? See, the reason you need this sermon is that these books contain truth. The truth of the almighty, currently living, always has been living, the very real living God. And today, I want to walk you through why this book can be reliable. So Paul is talking to Timothy, his young protege, and he's talking to him. Remember, last week we looked at the false teachers, these false teachers who worm their way into people's homes and deceive people. And in the end, their folly, their foolishness is going to be given to every, it's to be evident to everybody. But Paul now transitions. He's made a comparison. Here's the false teachers. But now, Timothy, I want you to understand why this is important and what is different. So he says, Again, the false teachers were this way, but now in 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning with verse 10, he says, You, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, love, endurance, persecutions, and sufferings. What kind of things happened to me in Antioch and Iconium and Lystra, the persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from what? From all, everybody say all. All of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be what? Okay, how many of you in here want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? Let's be honest. You're saying, I might not be there, but I want to. I want to. That's us, right? Well, everybody who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It might come from family. It might come from friends. It might come from culture. It might be a direct opposition to it. It might be those who want you dead because of your wanting to live a life in Christ Jesus. He says this in verse 13. While evildoers, making that comparison, you know, my life, my way of teaching, people who want to live in Christ, but let's look at the evildoers. The evildoers and imposters, they're going to go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So he's just saying, listen, you know about my way. Again, those false teachers, they're going to start off and they're going to be bad. They're going to deceive people. But their progress is not going to be better and better. It's going to go from bad to worse and from worse to not only deceiving others but being deceived themselves. They will think they've got it together, but in fact they don't. He's made a huge comparison. And what I want you to realize today, I think Paul is teaching Timothy, if you're taking notes, that God doesn't promise to keep you from suffering, but he promises to rescue you out of it. He doesn't promise to keep you from suffering, but he promises to rescue you out of it. And and here's the dynamic. A lot of us, when we pray, we're saying, God, rescue me from suffering. Help me not to suffer. Please don't let me get sick. Don't let me have problems. Rescue me out of it. Like, God, bring your, bring your holy helicopter and rescue me out of my problems. Lift me up out of my problems and help me just get all better. And, and, and God doesn't promise to keep us from suffering. But some of us want a God who keeps us from suffering. We want a God 
who is the freedom from suffering God. We want the God who's going to rescue us from any bad time, from any human conflict, who's going to rescue us from all these things and lift us out so we don't have trouble in our lives. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, because I have overcome the world. What's his point? He doesn't promise to keep you from suffering. He didn't keep himself from suffering. He willingly gave himself to suffering for your sake and my sake on the cross. But he promises to rescue us out of it. And keep in mind, the final rescue often happens at the transition from this earthly life into heaven. That for some of us, death is the final rescue of God from a fallen body, from an earthly life, from the persecutions of others, to a place where there is no more suffering, no more pain, no more sorrow. The old order of things has passed away. And remember, Paul is writing this to Timothy, and he's saying, listen, you remember when I got the snot beat out of me in Iconium and in Antioch? Remember, I was almost dead. They stoned me. They threw stones at me, and they left because they thought I was dead, but I came back anyway. And he goes, I've just been beat up so many times. He's going, you know the persecutions I've endured. You know the things that have happened to me. God didn't, like, stop the stones, and, like, the stones just bounced off like you had this invisible force field around you, like, (laughs) and they just bounced off. It's not what happened with Paul. He says, you know that in all these things I suffered. But God rescued me out of it. But he's writing to him now saying, listen, I I know I'm not going to leave Rome. I know I'm going to die. But his hope is still in Christ that God will, even in that martyrdom, will rescue me from this body of death. He will lead me into his eternal kingdom. See, he was soon to be martyred for his belief in Jesus Christ. So he's saying to Timothy, listen, that's what's going to happen to me. As for me, here's the difference between me and these deceivers, these false teachers. But what I want you to do is, as for you, even though you know that we'll be persecuted, even though you know that persecution will ultimately lead to my martyrdom, he's saying, well, what about you? Should you quit? Should you give in? Should you go for ease? What does he say in 2 Timothy 3.14? He says to Timothy, but as for you, what? Continue. I want you to catch that for a minute. He goes, this is what's going to happen to me. But Timothy, don't give up. Endure. Continue. Continue going, not just because I'm your mentor in Christ, but continue because it's the right thing to do. It's the truth. You're following the truth. So he says this, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. He says, now all scripture is God, what? Breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Now the Bible is saying of itself, the Bible saying of itself, what happens when the author talks? He's saying it's God breathe. I want you to take your hand, put it in front of your mouth for a minute. Everyone say it with me. We're going to say God breathe. Ready? God breathe. What happened when you said the word breathed? You felt something on your hand, right? You felt breath come out of your, out of your mouth, onto your hand. What he is saying here is that, listen, Scripture is speaking of itself, the words of the author. What happens when the author speaks? That's what scripture is, that the the word is actually God breathed. It comes from a combination of two Greek words. The first one is theo, from which we get 
theology or the study of God, we get God. So it's, it's God, and then the second word is the word pneuma, the word spirit. God breathed, it's, it's theonustos, and it means God breathed, that when God spoke, the authority, the origin, everything about the word of God came from the author, not from who necessarily wrote it down. Are you following me? That this is from the source, this is from the author himself, that it is breathed by God, though a human person would have written it down. It is God-breathed, it's not man-breathed, it's not person-thought, it's not a person's creativity, it's the source of the speaker, God. And God's word will give you and I everything we need to do all that God would call you and I to do. See, this Bible is an incredibly interesting book. Have you ever thought about this for a minute? This book, by the way, is the number one bestseller in the history of humanity. Do you realize that? In all the world, this is the number one bestseller. This is also the number one most shoplifted book in the history of the world. It is, by far. This book is the most shoplifted book. Listen, the Bible contains 773,692 words. It would take the average person about 70 hours to read this book aloud. So if you started right now and just read aloud, 70 hours. It was written by all sorts of different people. It was written by statesmen and farmers and shepherds and poets and, and uh, even tax collectors. A doctor wrote it. It was written in 13 different countries across three continents. The continents of Africa and Asia and Europe. It was written in three different languages, the Old Testament in Hebrew, parts of the New Testament, the Gospels in Aramaic, and the rest of the New Testament in Greek. Three different languages. What's amazing is that even though it was written and contributed to by over 40 different people who wrote it down as it was God-breathed, over 1,500 years, it has an amazing accuracy and consistency when it comes to the big message and the story of God. His character, his nature, and his purpose and plan for humans to come into relationship with him. The Bible is the word of God. It's God's big story. It is one book, but it's comprised of 66 individual books. That's amazing. I mean, the four of us in this room sat down to write, and we compared our writings. We would disagree on lots of things. Picture 40 authors over a span of 1,500 years. Think of the differences in thought, culture, arts, sciences. And yet it is consistent. It's unbelievable. See, not only is it consistent, true, and inspired, but it speaks on so many different topics. You ever thought, you know, I wonder if the Bible speaks on what's actually going on in my life? I wonder, like, I wonder if there's like some verses or stuff for what's really going on with me. Well, let me give you some of the very vast amount of topics that are included in Scripture. Scripture speaks about all sorts of different things. It speaks about divorce, marriage, remarriage, adultery, sex, lust, greed, guilt, materialism, generosity, healing, hope, forgiveness, parenting, prayer, friendship, pride, obedience, heaven, hell, lying, murder, suicide, rape, fears, doubt, miracles, love, criticism, money, creation, government, patience, peace, leadership, faithfulness, self-control, government, it's, I say government, government, um, Injustices, it teaches on angels and demons, it teaches about dogs and cats, lions and lambs living together, even. 
It deals with caring for the poor and handling wealth and raising a family. You know, the Bible is interesting. It talks even about cats. I don't know if you know this. Any cat lovers in the room? Good job. All right. I just want to let you know that the Bible talks about the devil prowling around like a roaring lion. I mean, not your house cat, but a roaring lion, right? It never says the devil is like a dog prowling around looking for someone to devour. Only cats. I'm just saying. But let's talk about how reliable is the Bible. How reliable is this book? Because a lot of us at times, we just listen to the impressions of other people, the opinions of other people about the supposed reliability of the Bible, the supposed statements of the Bible. It's always funny to me as a pastor when people will come up and say, well, doesn't the Bible say that? And they say like some phrase from pop culture that the Bible never talked about or like some old wives tale or something, right? How reliable is the Bible? Let's look at that for just a minute. Is the Bible, we have to ask, is it trustworthy? Can I trust this book? And that's great, you have the opinion, Dave, that it's God-breathed, but can I trust the reliability? Can we put it through some real tests? And so today I want to evaluate the authenticity of historical writings. Among them, I want to evaluate the Bible. In 19... Uh, 52, there was a historian named Steve Saunders, and he came up with three specific tests to test the reliability of Scripture. And we're going to look at those together today. The first test is known as the internal test. In other words, what does the Bible and the people surrounding the Bible, what does it say about itself? Do the writers of the Bible claim that their writing is true? Or do they say, hey, listen, this is just a really good story. This is just something I made up. What do the authors of the Bible say about it themselves? You know, uh, or do they say, listen, no, 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 time out. I was there. I'm not making this stuff up. I saw it firsthand. What do the authors who wrote the Bible say about it themselves? Here's what Peter said, one of the disciples of Christ, when he wrote 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He said, for we did not follow cleverly devised stories. Okay. Who's making up these stories to itch people's ears? It's the false teachers that Paul's referring to, right? And Peter's saying, listen, we didn't follow a bunch of nice stories. He says this, when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter refers right away to the, the fact that he was there. He's like, I was there. I saw it. I experienced Jesus firsthand. See, the New Testament was written between 47 A.D. and 95 A.D. And there were plenty of first-generation believers around at the time as the Bible's being written, as these letters are circulated among New Testament churches, who could say, well, time out, time out. That's not true. That never happened. I was alive. I was in the city. I was there. They could have said that, but they didn't. That's really important for you to understand. Was the Bible reliable to the people in the first century who also were eyewitnesses but not those who wrote down the words inspired by God? Could they have confronted it? Could they have come out against it? They did not. They did not. That's really good news. The Bible clearly passes the internal test, which you would assume that it should, right? They're like, great, that's the internal test, but what about the external test? What about other writings that are contemporaries that would talk about the Bible? Because they could just say that whole group of people, they're just really weird. They're, you know, they're just off or whatever. What do the other 
authors and historians at the time have to say. So what do historical non-biblical sources say about the Bible? Do they confirm the biblical words or do they say, ah, those aren't really true? One of the first historical writings came from a guy in the first century, a historian. His name is Josephus. And Josephus wrote, he's not a biblical guy, he wrote about Jesus. He wrote about John the Baptist. He wrote about James and a bunch of other guys who were mentioned in the book of Acts. He just mentioned them as contemporaries as he was recording history about all sorts of things. So you might say, okay, we've obviously got other historical writings out there that affirm that the things that were going on in the Bible is true. But some of you are like, I want hard and fast evidence. Let's get some science in here, not just, you know, some other writer at that time, contemporary. What about archaeology? What about archaeology? Listen, for a lot of years, archaeologists would say, we'd love to believe the Bible, but there are some gaps that we see no evidence for. No evidence for. And in a lot of ways, their gaps were actually valid. They had a valid argument. So for years, they said, listen, we see no evidence of this culture called the Hittites. It's mentioned in the Bible, but there's no archaeological evidence for them. And then in 1907, archaeological discoveries gave external evidence to the Hittite kingdom, so much so that you could go, and actually most of you reading about history today would read about the Hittites, and that wouldn't be a conflict for you. But in years past, that seemed to be a huge gap. It seemed to be a huge conflict, but it actually was reversed, and the Bible shown to be accurate in its archaeology. Other discoveries validating the Bible include the city of Jericho, Nineveh, and Babylon. In fact, in the last 15 years, it's been pretty awesome because I went to Israel a lot of years ago when I was in college. And then I went last year. But just in the last 15 years, so much archaeological evidence has been uncovered that I didn't see the first time that I got to see this time. And one of them is a city that sits on the Sea of Galilee between Tiberias, which is mentioned in the Bible, and Capernaum, which is mentioned in the Bible. And they're not far apart, probably mm, 10 miles max apart. But between those two cities in the last 10 years, they found the city of Magda. Didn't exist. When I went there a number of years ago, we didn't see it. It wasn't found yet. But already it was found. Maybe you've heard of Mary of Magdalene, right? Again, just these things that even now are being uncovered and found in current archaeology are affirming what has actually already been related to be as true in the Bible. Over and over and over again, we're finding archaeological discoveries that simply confirm what the Bible has already talked about. In fact, if anybody would maybe want to take issue with the Bible or not, it might be this guy. This guy is Nelson Gluck, who's former president of the Jewish Theological Seminary and one of the great all-time archaeologists. If you were Jewish, you'd be like, this guy is like the Indiana Jones of you know, archaeology for the nation of Israel, and he said this, it may be stated categorically that no archaeological discovery has ever controverted a biblical reference. Isn't that amazing? That is very, very good news when you're putting the Bible to the external test. So first we have the internal test, Second, we have the external test. And some of you are like, well, that's great. We got those two, of course. But what about the third test? The third test is called the bibliographic test. The bibliographic test. And this test that came about wants to find out how well the original manuscripts translate to today. So all these years have gone by, 
how well do the originals translate to today? Now, there's only one original manuscript, right? So in the Old Testament times, copies were made. Well, how were copies made in the Old Testament? They would write them on animal skins. They would write them on long scrolls. They would very much try to protect them. But they were super careful about how they wrote and copied a translation. You say, well, like, give me an example. For example, when they were writing it, what they would do is they would get through an entire manuscript. They would find out exactly what is not just the middle word of the entire manuscript, but what's the middle letter of that word. And if it was in the wrong location, when they scrolled that thing out, if in the dead middle was not that word with that letter in the right place in the word, they would burn the copy. The entire thing. In fact, those who were writing down the copies oftentimes would come, when they're writing and copying, they'd come to the word God. Before they could write the word God, they'd have to put down their, their little feather or pen or whatever, and they'd go over and they'd do a ceremonial washing of their hands, to clean their hands, come back, and write down the name of Almighty God. And the name of God is in the Bible a lot. They took incredible care. In fact, you know, they would just destroy the whole copy if there was even one error found. Well, in the Old Testament, there were very few copies, right? Because they wore out. It's so long ago. They were written on animal skins, that kind of thing. Um, and so, and other times they would be attacked and then they'd be burned. You know, people would try to burn the word of the Old Testament. They'd destroy the Jewish culture, whatever they could do. But the most well-respected Hebrew manuscript is called the Masoretic Text. That's what the most reliable ancient copy we have in the Old Testament is called the Masoretic Text. Now, here's the amazing part of the story. In the year 8070, so Jesus has been crucified, dead and buried, risen up to heaven over about 40 years later, the Roman people take issue with the Jews and say, we're going to conquer them, we're going to wipe out their culture in many ways. It was at that time that they destroyed the temple, the actual temple of God that had been built. And what they did is they shoved those massive stones, tons and tons, they shoved those massive stones off the temple mount. They fell way down, and in fact they hit so hard that they destroyed a first century street beside the temple mount. If you go to Israel with us next year, you will see where the actual stones of the temple were shoved off and destroy a first century street. Do you know when I went to Israel a lot of years ago, you couldn't even get there. Since then, they've dug down 30 feet. And in digging down 30 feet, they came to those stones. They came to that street. And they found for the, one of the first times, this is the level of first century archaeological excavation. And here are stones that have destroyed a first century street shoved off the Temple Mount by the Roman soldiers. They cleaned the top. They went on to try to purge a lot of the Jewish culture. And so what happened is people grabbed the scrolls. They ran out to the desert. There were places out in the desert where they were copying the scriptures. And what they did is when the Romans came to attack, and ultimately at a place called Masada that we will also go if you go to Israel, that when we're there, they, they ran away to this place. But previously they're like, we got to do something. We got to save these scrolls. And so they put them inside of large ceramic jars. It would be kind of like their, their modern bottle thirsty and they would put him inside there and they and they would put him in there and they would collect them in a very arid climate where it's not going to get a lot of moisture they're going to hide them away most likely and most obviously in caves they didn't want the romans to destroy their culture they had to protect the word of god and so what happened for 1800 years these scrolls have been put in these ceramic jars and nobody knew about them then one day out in the desert a shepherd is wandering around and he he grabs a rock and he's chucking rocks because you're bored when you're a shepherd. Like, you, what do you do while the sheep are sitting there eating little weeds in the desert? 
because that's the green pastures that you would bring them to. By the way, I know when you read like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down by green pastures. You're thinking Kentucky, <laughs> right? You think Grass Valley. But in those days, it's desert, and the, the, the green pastures were the place where the water would run in the desert down into a little crevice, and right there is the only place where green stuff would grow. So the shepherd every day would lead the sheep to where nourishment was, and it was going to be different every day. While the sheep are eating, what do you do? You chuck rocks. That's what you do if you're a shepherd boy, right? You throw rocks. So he sees this cave way up high, and he chucks a rock, and the rock goes up in that cave, and he hears the breaking of a ceramic jar. He doesn't hear the normal sound of a rock hitting other rocks in a place called Qumran. I want to show you a picture of that cave right now. Up on the screen behind me, you'll see that cave. So the shepherd boy is way down somewhere in there. He's like, I could do that. I could hit that thing, right? I could get in there, and I don't know what the cave looked like at the time. But he chucked it up in there, and in there they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Archaeologists then went in there and began to uncover an amazing uh, example of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, in fact, I want you to go to the next slide. This is from uh, the one angle. Now the next slide is looking back at those caves. Those caves are actually on the left-hand side where you see some buttresses of rock, maybe three or four sticking up like this uh, on, on the uh, left-hand side over here. And that's where those caves actually are. This is what you'd normally see. They would be well hidden, wouldn't they? You, wouldn't find, you might not find them for 1,800 years. Let me point out something to you. Remember when Jesus said that the wise man built this house on the rock? But the foolish man built his house on sand. How many of you have always thought of the beach, right? You thought like the beach and then sand, right? This is what Jesus was talking about. This is a massive place where all the water comes from, the massive hills that are behind us, through a, uh, this valley, this cut here. It's called the wadi. And what would happen is you get a flash flood. Does water run there all the time? No, only when there's a big storm. And then when the storm happens, all this runs down, and you can see all that sand at the bottom, all that gravel at the bottom that washes, and then it ends up in the Dead Sea. Because right here, the water is going to run downhill, and that Dead Sea is 1,400 feet below sea level. So as Jesus is teaching, everyone's picturing, what's wise? Build your house on the rock or down there in the gully? On the rock, right? That's what he's talking about. But it was down there in the gully, perhaps, that the shepherd boy had the rock and was throwing it up in the cave. And they found the Dead Sea Scrolls. Archaeologists went and discovered 11 other sources besides that cave of these ancient scrolls. And what's amazing is when you compare what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls to the Masoretic text, the most reliable ancient text we have, the accuracy is absolutely stunning. Listen, it passes the bibliographic test. The Bible is the word of God. So let's, re let's wrestle with this question for a minute. Like, how accurate are biblical copies, right? Let's compare some other historical writings. Because we don't just have the Bible. We've got other writings that we could evaluate. How many of you in high school had to read the Iliad by Homer? You had to read it, maybe some of you are reading high school kind of thing, right? Well, that's a pretty, that's a pretty phenomenal writing, and, and there's, you know, you go back and you go, how many copies do we have? Give me any idea. How many copies do we have of the Iliad by Homer? Okay, I hear different words. 643, that's right. 643, no one got that right, because it was way beyond what we were thinking, right? That's a lot. So we would by any means say we've got a lot of things that we can check to see if modern translations of Homer's Iliad are correct. Well, maybe, how many of you have ever heard about this guy, Aristotle? Anybody ever heard of Aristotle, right? How many writings do we have of his? Five. Five. That's it. 
Maybe you've heard of uh, Plato's Republic. You heard of Plato, his Republic? That writing? How many we got? Seven. Good try, though. That was a nice try. Maybe you've heard of Caesar and some of his writings. We've got about ten. So let me just give you an example. You've got five, you've got seven, you've got ten compared to 643. Obviously, the ability to check the accuracy is much better with Homer's Iliad than the others, right? How many copies of the New Testament ancient writings do we have? Over 24,000. 24,000. So when you look to say, how much evidence do we have to determine if modern translation is accurate to ancient historical writing, you have more than you could spend a lifetime looking for the accuracies that already exist. And listen, this is with repeated efforts to destroy, to burn the Bible, to get rid of the Jewish culture or get rid of the Bible. This is, I mean, how's that working out for its opponents? Yeah, not very well, right? God protects his word. Why? Because it's not any ordinary book. This book is God-spoken, God-breathed. Authors wrote as they were carried along by God's Holy Spirit. It was not from their own origin or their own clever thinking. As you compare the Bible against any other historical writing that's recognized, the Bible stands alone and unquestionably passes the bibliographic test with flying colors. So why then is the Bible essential to me? Some of you are like, I, okay, that's great, thank you. I'd like to take that historical book and I'd like to put it in my back pocket. I'd like to just say, hey, I want to add that historical book to cool stuff. But why is the Bible essential to your life in this century now? Why is it? Why is this Bible essential to you? Well, Paul's writing to Timothy and he tells him, here's why the scriptures are so essential to your life right now. In fact, Abraham Lincoln said this, he said of the Bible, take all that you can of this book on reason. And the balance, in other words, the stuff you don't understand, take it on faith. And you will live and die a happier man. So Abraham Lincoln said, but let's fast forward from his day to our day. Why is the Bible essential to you and me right now, today? Well, Paul gives us four reasons. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you're taking notes, he says, All scripture is God-breathed and useful for four things. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay. The first two words of that verse are all scripture. Everyone say, how much scripture? All. Do I just need the New Testament in my life? No, I need all, right? I need all 66 books. Why? Because it is the story of God. From the creation of people and the way that God intended life to be to the entrance of sin. And then when sin destroyed and separated man and God, separated people from God and they were banished from the garden. And then God begins to walk them through at a time when he said, I can destroy all people. I'm going to save some. And so when the flood came, he saved Noah and his sons and their wives. And they made it through the flood and they started to propagate again the earth. And they began to go out and then God says, I'm going to choose a nation to become a great inheritance to all the earth. And he chose the Jewish people, the Hebrew people who were slaves at one point in time. And he brings them out even of their slavery. And through that nation, through that culture, he brought Jesus as the blessing to all nations. So that all people of every race and tribe and color and nation could praise him, could worship him and be saved through his sacrifice. And then the New Testament is all about those who've been saved, whether Jewish people or all the other cultures of the world. 
following Jesus Christ, and then we look ahead at Revelation to the day when we will be together with God where there is no more tears, no more sorrow, no more suffering, no more pain. Listen, all scripture is profitable and useful for your life. But he tells four specific areas. Let's look at those together. First of all, it's teaching. It's learning what I just told you. That the Bible is the big picture story of Christ, God's love for you, that God would become flesh, that he would live a perfect life, that he would hang on a cross and suffer, not keep himself from suffering, but he would suffer for your sin and my sin, pay it full, and now offer eternal life to any who give faith, who put their faith in what Jesus did on the cross. And he said, that will reconcile you with me. You will have peace with God, and you'll have an inheritance in heaven kept for you if you do that. It's that story, learning to know Christ. So we put ourselves in a position to receive biblical teaching. Some of you in this room, you will teach. Others of you in the room, you're going to teach your children. You're going to teach your spouse. You're going to be the spiritual leader of your home simply because you're going to learn some things in the Bible and you're going to share what you're learning and what God has done with you with somebody else. That's called teaching. It's about Christ. Second, rebuking. Oh, we don't like this word. Rebuking sounds like what most people think the Bible does, right? Just tells me I'm wrong. Just tells me I'm wrong again. It's like what happens to you when you're texting at a green light and someone honks. So offensive, right? Absolutely offensive. Yeah, I have to finish my text and I'll go at the green light when I'm sitting there, right? You get offended by that because it just tells you, hey, you're doing it. And that's what you think. You think the Bible just rebukes people or rebukes me. Tells me what I do wrong. But I want you to understand the intent of rebuke. And here's what it is. Rebuking is detecting and exposing false thoughts, false ideas, and errant teachings. It's not just telling you that your actions are wrong. It's saying, listen, listen. The thing you're thinking, it's not helpful. It's not good for you. In fact, it's not right. Because sometimes our thinking gets convoluted. Our thinking gets confusing. Our thinking gets wrong. We make agreements with wrong thoughts. You might think, hmm. I don't think God will keep putting up with me because I've done wrong stuff. I think he's going to abandon me. And the Bible will rebuke that. It'll say, whoa, time out, time out, time out. Don't make an agreement with that thought. Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Yeah, but you don't know my list and we try and make an argument. No, no, time out. The Bible's going to rebuke that false thought. It's not healthy for you. It's not healthy for anything else. In fact, it'll sidetrack you from doing all that God would want you to do. You might think to yourself, oh, I just want to live how I want. I just want to do whatever I want. And the Bible will come along and say, no, 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 please. Son, daughter, when you do what you want, it hurts you. It hurts people around you. It doesn't satisfy. It's so empty. The love of self, the love of pleasure are terrible lovers, right? Like we looked at last week. They're awful and I want something better. So the Bible will rebuke that. It will also rebuke errant teaching. When you're starting to get one degree off and go a different direction, the Bible will speak for itself. But then it does another thing. So first of all, it's teaching, then rebuking, but then it does something good. It's called correcting. You think correcting is like wagging a finger at you. Correcting is a good thing. It's turning away from sin and turning toward righteousness and cooperating with God's Holy Spirit. So what happens is this, that when our ideas are wrong, it rebukes those ideas, and we're able to say, you know what, that doesn't lead me down a road to peace. I'm going to reject that idea, I'm going to start 
turning away from that sinful thought or that agreement that is so selfish. I'm going to turn toward righteousness. i got to have something to go toward if, I, if this idea has been rebuked. So it's going to correct. It's saying this, son, daughter, I love you. I don't want you to keep making the same mistakes over and over and over your entire life. I don't want you to have the same pains all over again, just with different people. I don't want you to have, you know, these experiences that just devalue who you are. I want you to run toward something that leads you on a path to peace, joy, even when life gets relentless. That'll help you endure. That'll help you not quit anymore. That'll help you stick with it. I want to build character in your life, and I, I love you that much. That's what correcting does. That's why the scriptures are good to correct. And last, to train us in righteousness. This is wisdom for salvation and training for every good work. You might have skipped over it. But Paul tells Timothy right away why scripture is so essential to your life and mine. He says this, And how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for what? Help me out here. Wise for what? Okay, I just want you to understand something. Why is the scripture useful to you? Because it tells you how to be saved. There is no other way by which a person can be saved but through Jesus Christ. It tells you God's whole big story. It tells you why he loves you so much. It tells you why he sacrificed and went through suffering for you. It tells you, it makes you wise so that you may be saved. And then later in 2 Timothy 3.10, oh no, I'm sorry, at the, at the end in uh, verse 16, it says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Here's the so what? So why? Why would it do all those things in my life? Listen, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Some of you are like, I don't know. I don't know if I can live up to my potential. I don't know if I have what it takes to be a good Christian. I don't know if I have what it takes to make it through to the end. I don't know if I have the power to endure. And the Bible will say, no, 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 no. Let's capture that thought. The Bible will give you all that you need that you are thoroughly equipped for every good work. You need the Bible in your life. Because it's there that you live up to all that God would want to do in you and then all that God would want to do through you. That's why Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, I'm going to die, but you continue. God's not finished with you yet. 2 Timothy 3.10, Paul writes, you, however, know all about my teaching, my way of life, my purpose. Then he lists four things. He says, faith, patience, love, endurance. He's talking about character traits in his life. How did those get there? Paul used to be impatient. Literally, he was like, let's go get the Christians. And he would go and he would arrest people. He'd throw them in jail. He would persecute. He would fight against the church. He fought against Jesus. He was impatient. In fact, God, I think, was up in heaven. He was like, who are we going to get to spread the gospel to the entire world? And they're going, I don't know. The disciples are hiding out from, you know, they're, they're a little bit afraid of getting persecuted. And they're like, hey, we got this guy. He's not a believer yet, but we got this guy. He's willing to go for it. His name's Saul, and we're going to change his name to Paul, but he's the same guy, and we're going to basically go after him. And I think God was then met Saul on the road to Damascus, changed his name, revealed himself to him. Who are you persecuting? He, he said, I don't know. Who's speaking? He said, Jesus of Nazareth. And from that moment forward, Paul began preaching the good news of Jesus. Guess what happened in his life? He went from being an impatient guy to a patient guy. 
He began to grow to be, instead of persecuting people, more loving. He endured the worst to bring us the truth. He didn't just give up anymore. He didn't say, you know what, I, I, I paid my dues for Jesus, man. When they, when they stoned me outside that city and left me for dead, I paid my dues. Uh, you guys take the message. He didn't give up. He kept going. Well, who taught him about this? The scriptures made him wise for salvation. But then they also gave him all he needed to complete his mission that God called for him to do. Listen, the Bible is essential to your life right now, every day. You need it. You need to be in this book reading it, not just saying, okay, God, thanks. I'm going to add that to somewhere in my life. No, you need it. These are living words, the very breathing, spoken words of God. That Why does the Bible matter in your life? Why should you read it every day? Because you and I need to be taught about Christ. You and I need to be rebuked about ideas we've started to believe that are harmful to us. You and I need to be shown which is the correct way to go. And you and I need to be prepared for every great work that God wants to do in and through you. That's why. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, just think about your own life. For just a moment, I know some of you are just at the starting point. You, you've needed this information today because you said, how do I know that this stuff is true? And today, you've walked it through the test, and you're like, okay, that's it. I need to surrender to Jesus. I see what God's been doing here all along. And if that's you today, then you pray a prayer like this right where you're seated. Jesus, today I give you me. I ask you to come into my life and make me a new creation. I believe you died on the cross for my sin, that you were buried, and you rose to new life. I ask you to forgive me of my sin and wash me as white as snow on the inside, because today I give you me. Believers in the room during this time right now, I want you to tell God what's the plan. What's the plan? What's the plan for you to get back in the Word this week? What's the plan for you to read the Bible? Are you going to just kind of be scattered about it? Are you going to be intentional? Maybe you tell God, God, I'm going to read the book of James this week. God, I'm going to read the Gospel of John. God, I'm going to read, and you tell him what the plan is. That's between you and the Lord, but will you take a moment and tell God what the plan is to be in his Word? Father, we're so grateful that you would love us enough. You could have just spun the world into existence and said, okay, you're on your own. But you loved us now, our generation now, our life now, that you would speak to us. And God, we agree that you speak to us through sermons. You speak to us through your word. You speak to us through music. God, you speak to us in creation. God, that you are a God who still speaks, and we are the people who can listen. God, we want to be people who don't just talk to you, but people who hear what it is you're saying. May the word of God have claim on our lives as a church. May it change us. May it strengthen us. May it set us up for all the good things that you would want us to do as people and corporately as a church. We love you in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Thank you for listening to the Sun Grove Podcast. For information on Sun Grove Church, visit our website at sungrove.org.